Hi everybody, thank you for tuning into Husky Talk. This week we will be talking with a member of the Iditarod Hall of Fame. He has been involved with the Iditarod since the early years. He is an Iditarod veteran and the official artist of the Iditarod. Please welcome to the show, John Van Zyl. Hi John. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Great, welcome to the show. Thank you. Our first segment of the show is titled, Who Inspires You? During this segment, we would like for you to tell us a little bit about who inspired you to get involved in the Iditarod. Okay. Um, actually, probably nobody. Um, I was running dogs a long time before Iditarod came along. And when in 73, when we basically first, well, actually it was 72 when we first started hearing about it. And uh, uh, got a little bit involved with, you know, passing out brochures and pamphlets and that kind of thing from uh, with Joe Reddington and you know, a couple other guys, Dick Mackey. Um, and then in uh, 73, my kennel partner and I tossed or flipped a coin to see who would run the first year in 73, and he won. And I didn't run until nine, my first race was in 1976. Good for so you. That, that's kind of how I got started. But again, you know, um, we were traveling with dogs a long time before I did or I came along. So most of us back in the old days, you know, in the beginning, most of us uh, who were running it, you know, we've been traveling with dogs. And we knew, you know, quite a bit about that. That sounds like a fun experience. Pardon me? That sounds like a good experience. Yeah, it was fun. Good. Yeah. We're now it going... Oh, sorry. It was a lot different then than it is now. It was back then it was taking us mostly 25 or 30 days just to finish it. Wow. And now they're doing it in 8, 9, 10. So everything was much harder and much longer and no trails and, you know, no... no marked or no most we most of the time we spent snowshoeing in front of our dog teams or lost or something so yeah but it was fun good we are now going to move on to our q a segment we're going to start with some questions about when you were in the iditarod and then switch to our focus on the art side all right can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were in the iditarod back in 1976 and 1979 well, like I said before, it was a lot different than it is now. Uh, now they have a, a good trail. Basically, it's you know it's a very very well defined put in trail. There are thousands and thousands of trail markers along the way. Um, they have straw at every checkpoint. Um, back in our days, there was no trail basically. Um, what trail there was, we kind of made it in front of our dogs with, with snowshoes, and occasionally we'd hit, you know, a decent, a decent trail, but most of it was hard work in front. Um, we didn't have, obviously, we didn't have straw. We cut spruce boughs. Uh, if we camped at night or during the day or you know whatever, we 
whenever we can, we usually cut spruce boughs and lay down for the dogs. It would just keep them off the snow a little bit and, you know, help help them sleep better. Um, I fed about every, I snacked about every four hours, four or five hours, and then uh, give them a rest for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, and then we'd go on, continue on. Um, we didn't, well, like I said, it took most of us on the average of 25 and 30 days to finish the first few races. Um, now they're doing it nine and 10. So everything, everything about the race has changed. So, yeah. but it was fun. I, you know, we just enjoyed it. It was every now and then we, you know, see somebody else and we camp or, or you know, sit and talk for a while. And we had, uh, in the snow up here, when you build a fire, um, the, the fire, you know, you, you tramp the snow down a little bit, but, you know, the snow is so deep that you can't pack it down too much, and you'd be sitting in a, in a hole, you know, eight or ten feet deep because of a bunch of guys standing around it and, and a fire in the middle of it because the fire had melted the snow down to the tundra. Um, it, was, it was good times. We enjoyed ourselves. Good. Um, what was the most challenging aspect of running the Iditarod? Staying awake. <laughs> um, you know, the, the kids today, they think that they're tired when they come in the gnome after, you know, eight or nine days or ten days. You try staying awake for 25 or 30. Um, you are totally exhausted. Um, dogs are doing well because... You know, they get three or four or five, six hours of sleep, and then they're ready to go. Um, in those four or five or six hours that they're sleeping, obviously we were taking care of them, cooking our own, you know, food or cooking the dog food or, you know, basically taking care of them. We might have gotten, oh, maybe half an hour every other day or an hour every other day or half an hour a day or, you know, very sporadic sleep. We were very, very tired when we got to the end. Yeah. My my first I did around seventy six. Be very honest with you. Um, I really didn't want it to end. Um, you get into such a rhythm of you know camping and traveling and camping and traveling and camping and traveling that you really don't want to stop. I mean, you do. You're thankful at the end. But uh, I didn't really want to stop. I just wanted to keep going. Mm -hmm. so, but, you know, I mean, I was sure happy. To, I was happy to stop, but I really didn't. I just, you know, was in a, in a good, good place. Yeah. What is the biggest change you have noticed in the Iditarod since you have last participated? Trail. There is one now. Uh, straw. Actually, of all the changes that they've had, and trust me, there are hundreds of them, of all the changes, probably the most important change that they made was um, the dog straw. You know, 
shipped into various, all the checkpoints. Um, because that allows the dogs to really rest well. And um, we did very, very little, quote unquote, staying in the villages. Most of our, quote unquote, camping was done, you know, on the trail or outside, you know, villages or stuff. Um, but probably the most important change that they made is the straw, um, you know, as far as for the dogs and, and everybody else. Um, and there are much more better facilities in the checkpoints. Most of our checkpoints were, you know, a guy's cabin or something along the way. Dog food has been very, very, very much improved. We fed uh, you know, a lot of fish, a lot of meat. Um, we didn't have the high, high, high protein, uh, high fat content foods that they have today. I fed a mix that we'd fed for years up here called Don's Alaska Dog Food. It was made here in Alaska. And it, was, it was a good dog food, but it was not. Now, in today's world, they can basically, if, if they want to, they could feed straight um, Eagle Pack or, you know, a, a very, very high, high quality dog food without the snacks and the, the meat and things, but we couldn't. Um, we had to supplement it. And then, to be honest with you, we still supplement it with our dog teams. You know. Okay. What is your favorite memory about running the Iditarod, and does it make you miss it? One thing that probably not too many people know about, but <clears throat> one of the things that and I think it was in it was in the 1979 race. Um, going to somewhere on the on the Yukon River, I think it was between Blackburn and Caltag. Uh, nighttime, uh, moon, but you know, not not bright moon, just a moon. Um, nice nice evening. And I passed an island. In the, on the river, <clears throat> and um, as I got closer to the island, I could hear voices and you know murmuring and things you know just people talking from a long distance. And as I got closer and closer, you know they, they got louder and louder. And as I went by the spot. I could hear the, the loudest, you know, voices, people started clapping. And um, there was nobody there, but I could hear, you know, clapping and voices, laughter. And I got a little further down the trail, and, you know, the, all of this kind of died out, you know, like you were passing something and you, and you couldn't hear it any longer. And, but there was nobody there. And... Several, about a year after I came back from that race, I did a series of 20 paintings about my experiences on the, on that 79 race. <clears throat> um, did a painting about that experience. Uh, it's called Beyond the Unknown. And uh, a, a priest from the Yukon, one of the Yukon villages, purchased the painting and told 
you know, told me one at one time over the phone about that. Uh, what I had, you know, the people that I had heard. And I had passed an island that's not marked on any of the maps or anything, but the local people call it Massacre Island. And back in the day, you know, 100 years ago or whatever it was, a bunch of people were mad, were killed, massacred on that island. And a few people get to hear them every now and then. And so that was kind of a, you know, a nice privilege. That's kind of probably one of my favorite experiences. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, thinking back on it or knowing more about it now, it was, it was cool. Yeah, that sounds amazing. On to the art side of the Iditarod. To remind our listeners, John is the official artist of the Iditarod. How did you find your artistic talent and at what age? Oh, I've been painting all my life. I, when, I have a twin brother, Dan, and my mother raised us. We didn't have a father. And uh, she was a pretty good artist. And she always encouraged us to, you know, draw and, and do things. So I've been drawing since I was a little kid. And I knew that I, you know, probably wanted to be an artist when I was in high school. But, you know, eventually it just make your way, you know. Every job I, mostly every job I ever had from the time I was 13 or 14 were, you know, somewhat art-related. And if they weren't, I made them art-related in my mind Um, when I was... I was 14. Uh, you wouldn't know what what the term HOD is, H-O-D, but it's a it's a mixture of of, of uh, sand and cement, and it's it's used for bricklayers. And I was hired when I was 13 or 14 to carry HOD for a construction company. And uh, even that, I made it into a you know an artistic thing. Um, but, you know, I, I've always been an artist. It was either that. My mom had kennels when I was growing up as a kid. And uh, so, you know, we've had dogs all my life, basically, you know, kennels all my life. And, and when I was, you know, very young, I knew that I would either be an artist or I would be a vet. And, you know, because I'd had experience in both with the kennels and painting and drawing and stuff. So when I got in high school, I realized I wasn't a good in math and chemistry. And so I picked the easy way. Okay. As the official artist of the Editorod, can you tell us what your job is? I've done, uh, I think it's 40... This will be this year, in 2018, I think it's the 42nd or 43rd or Diderot poster. Um, in 76, to give you a little bit of history of it, in 1976, when I came back from the race, my first race, yeah, there were, literally, there were three people in a dog that knew anything about Iditarod. It was... Very unpopular. Nobody knew about it. You know, the first year or four, four or five or six years of the race, you know, maybe there'd be 100 people at the start, you know, watching you leave. 
Um, and there's just not too many people who bought it. And so when I came back from the 76 race, I went to the Iditarod committee, which at that time were three people. Um, Gail Phillips, uh, Walt Phillips, and um, one other person, I can't think who, who it is right now. Um, and I said, look, I got an idea of how to promote the race nationally, because I was starting, as an artist, I was starting to be shown outside, you know, in the States, in galleries. And so I was starting to get a somewhat of a, a name. And so I said, look, I can, you know, produce a poster for you guys, and you guys get the, the proceeds, etc." And they said, okay. And uh, I borrowed the money and did it for them. And next year they came back and they said it was so popular and they earned some money from it. Would you do it again? And I said, sure. And so we borrowed some more money and did it again for them. And eventually, you know, this is this 2018. It's, I think, the 42nd year. Um, by the way, if you guys don't know, um, there are a couple of books that were just published about my art. One of them is, is about... The, the 40 Iditarod official Iditarod posters and the 35 official Iditarod prints. Um, and if you, know, if you guys wanted to, they're available you know, in bookstores and things. Um, but that, that would give you somewhat of an idea of what they all look like. Um, but I don't, I'm not affiliated with Iditarod. All of the, all of the paintings, all of the copyrights, all of the, everything, uh, are, belong to me. I did around has nothing to, you know, say about them or do about them or anything. So, I mean, I'm their official artist, and I'm in the uh, Diderot Hall of Fame, but I'm not, I'm not affiliated with them. I'm not a member of, of the committee, you know. Okay. Do you have anything else to add about this year's poster and print? Well, I think, Aaron, your teacher has a, uh, an image of it. Yep, I'm looking at it right now. And also she has an image of this, well, this year's 2018, um, I did a rod print. Mm -hmm. And the print this year is um, about an incident that happened in the 1976 race. Uh, it's the one with the guy standing on the hill with the dogs in the windstorm. Um, we had, out of, before you get to Gullivan, there's a real steep hill, and it's kind of nickname is Little McKinley. And it, you know, uh, it's a real steep climb. And again, like I say, back in our day, there were no trails, but we knew we had to, you know, get there because it's, it's, it's a way through some of the, the valleys and stuff. And it's back in the, again, back, you know, when you were trying to locate how to go, if you travel enough with dog teams, you know kind of where the deep snow is, and so you don't go there. And so, you know, that would be, quote, if there was a trail, that's where it would have been. Or if there's a clearing in the trees or, you know, that kind of stuff. So we knew we had to climb this hill, and um, 
climbed it. Really, really windy, dark, uh, nighttime. And then really didn't, and it was so full of uh, willows and alder that we really couldn't find anywhere to get down onto the sea ice uh, and go to Tolliver. Um, and so, you know, we're trashing around, thrashing around, and they're looking for some place to get through the willows. And finally just kind of gave up and waited until a little bit of daylight because it was so windy you couldn't see anything. Um, and uh, eventually, it, you know, looked over towards where Gullivan on the sea ice, where Gullivan would have been. And I was just looking and looking and looking, and eventually I saw a light turn on way, way, way in the distance. You know, somebody had turned a, a, a light, you know, in their house on. So now we knew where Gullivan was. And we eventually, when it got light enough, we could, you know, crash our way through the willows and alder and get down onto the sea ice and then just point our dog teams in that direction and, and go. But that's what that painting is about. Um, so that's, that's that one. Okay. That was a, a favorite moment. Cool. Of all of the pieces of art you have created, do you have a favorite or a favorite thing to draw or paint? Well, I paint about 60 to 80 paintings a year, and I've done that for the last 50 years. And I've done, you know, sometimes I do 200 a year, depending on, you know, what I have to do. Um, I did a ride, and the, and the painting that we do for them, which is really only two a year, uh, they are one billionth of what I paint. Um, I paint a lot of wildlife, everything that's Alaska. I don't, I, you know, I did a lot of the very, very, very small portion of the paintings that I produce. Um, you know, we license a lot of, of work to, you know, clothing material and fabric shop or fabric companies and uh, gift shops and all kind you know gift gift giftware uh, companies uh, and we're licensing a lot of work all over plus you know gallery shows but uh, I really don't have a favorite I think if I were to pick you know a dog team kind of related one it has nothing to do with Iditarod or maybe it does but um, many, many years ago, I did a, a painting for a, a museum show that I did uh, at the Sky Art Museum, um, and it was a large painting. It was all probably four foot by three feet. Um, it was called Beyond, I mean, uh, it was called uh, Above the, the Struggle, and it was nothing, a very, very simple painting, all snow few, uh, you know, straggly spruce trees, again, you're looking above the trail. Uh, you know, you're 300 feet above the dog trail. And down below you is a, a fairly small dog team. And the musher, you know, pushing and struggling and trying to break trail in front of those dogs. Um, that kind of describes my life, maybe. 
So, uh, that's probably one of my favorites. But, you know, it, it was purchased at the museum show. You know, all just the people at the museum, you know, the, the people that were at the shows, uh, they saw it, and nobody else. Because there's relatively very few of my paintings that I do a year have ever been reproduced. I've only probably reproduced maybe 500 reproductions, and there's probably 5,000 paintings. So, you know, very, very few people see everything that I've ever do. But that, that was a favorite. Okay. What do you enjoy most about being an Iditarod official artist? segment of the show we like to call Musher Mount Rushmore. You know Mount Rushmore, right? Yep. Okay. If you were asked to replace the four presidents' faces on Mount Rushmore to faces of the Iditarod that have made a huge impact on the race, who would you include? You can pick mushers, dogs, volunteers, whatever you want. Um, she and her husband 
opened their cabin. They lived uh, way out of nowhere, a place called uh, Ofer. And they opened their cabin every year to the mushers. Um, and, you know, fed us and welcomed us. It was just a nice place. It, it became a checkpoint, um, you know, after a year or two, um, simply because of their good work. Um, I remember in 79, I talked to their husband. And I asked him, I said, you know, um, that was the first year, maybe the second year that we'd gone through to the, to the town of Iditarod, taking the, the uh, southern route. <clears throat> and I talked to him when I, as I was leaving over for Iditarod. I said, tell me something about, you know, the country between here and Iditarod. Because, again, there were no trails back then. And he said, John, he said, it's 90 miles. The first 30 miles, there's lots of trees. The next 30 miles, there's a few trees. In the last 30 miles, there are no trees. Stay between the hills. And that was my direction how to get to Iditarod. And um, so that kind of tells you, one, how, you know, it was back then. Like I said, there are no trails. Um, but anyhow, I think Audra would be a very good candidate for for your mountain. Um, <clears throat> another guy probably would be Howard Lincoln. Uh, he was a real stored uh, Eskimo man from White Mountain. And uh, Howard checked in all the mushers basically from 73 until like 93. Uh, you know, he was very, very faithful. Um, nice, nice man. Um, did it, you know, just strictly on his own. Uh, fed us, you know, he and his wife always had food and stuff for us. So I think Howell would be, certainly be up there too, at least in my opinion. That'd be the four. Thank you so much for being on our show, John. All right. You take care of yourself. Okay. Thank you. You too. Bye. Special thanks to John Van Zyl for being on Husky Talk. Credits to Hobo Jim for our theme song, the Iditarod Trail song.